BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. So we wanted to take this week. We're in the middle of the summer here. This is late July. I hope some of y'all are off on vacation, hanging out at the beach or wherever it is that you do your summer vacationing. So we want to take an episode here to kind of just reset the program. We've been coming to you now for coming up quickly on six months. And let's just kind of set the table again here. So this podcast is dedicated to trying to chart a course for the future of the American right in particular. Who are we as conservatives? What are we as conservatives? What should we be doing? What policy should we be proposing? What laws should we be passing? What should we be thinking about? What are the threats that face us? How relevant is domestic policy, foreign policy, all, all this stuff. And a lot of this you kind of hear on a week by week basis with, with a lot of the great guests that we've brought on, a lot of the the guests that we're going to bring on soon, we're trying just to kind of rethink this in real time here. We're having conversations. We're looking for certain examples. I mean, I, I'm a little biased here living in Florida. I, I spoke actually at the Florida Republican Party's Sunshine Summit was the name that they called this conference right here in Hollywood, Florida and Broward County this past weekend. It was really great. So I'm personally biased insofar as I think Governor Ron DeSantis here does a really great job of kind of hitting a lot of the notes that I think conservatives should be hitting. But we obviously are interested in kind of looking across for many other examples as well and trying to find new talent up and coming college, whatever. So thanks for so much for being along with the ride so far. And another thing that we want to do here, especially especially as we approach the August recess for Congress, Congress goes off the grid effectively for the month of August, the U.S. House goes back, you know, this is a few months before November elections, the congressmen got to go talk to the constituents and they got to fundraise, whatever. So as we approach that August recess, and as we start to really just accelerate the march towards the November midterm elections, it's worth emphasizing a couple of themes here. And I was, I, I, I was on uh, earlier this week, I was on Mornings with Maria, the Fox Business Show, and I was uh, guest hosting for Brian Suits over on KTTH talking about a lot of similar themes. And namely, I want to just kind of continue the conversation that we started on this podcast last week, which is really each week and each day it is just increasingly more obvious and more evident that this president and this administration are just completely hemorrhaging support. And the party that he leads, the, the Democratic Party, just really increasingly appears to not be capable of listening to the American people and actually charting a path forward that is responsive to the American people's concerns. So I've been hitting this beat in my columns as well. I think I mentioned last week, my column a couple weeks ago was entitled Resign Joe, just calling for Joe Biden to resign. Not that he'll listen to me, but it's worth getting that out there. He, he should resign. He's horrible. He's catastrophically abysmal, abominable, whatever adjective you want to use. 
And then my columns last week, I entitled it, quote, how did Democrats become so out of touch with the American people? And it really is kind of that latter trend that I want to explore and dive into a little bit more over the course of this particular resetting midsummer episode here. If you, th- if you think about the history of the Democratic Party, Think about the history of the Democratic Party. So if you really want to go back far enough, the modern Democratic Party's ancestors were Thomas Jefferson. Back in the day, this was the Democratic Republicans. By the time of Andrew Jackson in the late 1820s, early 1830s, that right then and there was the Democratic Party that we still know today. Uh, You know, they started canceling these after the George Floyd Summer of Love riots in 2020. But for a while there, for decades, the old school kind of local county Democratic Party dinners, they used to be known, if I'm not mistaken, as the Jefferson Jackson dinners or just the Jackson dinners, trying to pay homage to Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson. I think they've since largely canceled those because Thomas Jefferson, of course, famously was a slave owner. And, you know, if you're a modern wokester, if you're a modern leftist, you know, no matter what he said, obviously, if he owns slaves, therefore he's he's illegitimate by, by simple dint of the fact that he owns slaves. Andrew Jackson, of course, Trail of Tears, the Cherokees, you know, for whatever good Andrew Jackson may have done, and I'm sympathetic to much of what Andrew Jackson did, certainly when it comes to some of these sensitive issues, like the uh, upheaval of many American Indians, that is now anathema. So whatever. So they've rebranded um, from that but it's just, it really is interesting, though. I mean, for a while there, those Jefferson Jackson dinners were really as ubiquitous as the Republican Party's version of that, which, which is the Lincoln dinner, because Lincoln, of course, was the first Republican president. So anyway, so Jefferson Jackson, then by the time of the 20th century, the, the, the real transformative Democratic Party presidents are, of course, Woodrow Wilson, FDR, and LBJ. Those are really your three Democratic Party presidential heavy hitters over the course of the 20th century. If you want to continue into the early 21st century, you can definitely throw Barack Obama in there, who I think was every bit as transformational as Wilson, FDR, and LBJ. We can probably sprinkle in Harry Truman to a lesser extent there as well in the aftermath of World War II. But from Woodrow Wilson in the, around the time of World War One, nineteen teens, and then really accelerating under FDR and his New Deal program in in the Great Depression in the nineteen thirties. Here, this is when the Democratic Party really established itself as a working man's blue collar, uh, lower income, middle income. You know, really trying to appeal on those bread and butter, labor, economic, wage related issues to those kind of lesser off, to those on the lower rungs of the economic ladder. The New Deal under FDR was the best example of that, but you can really even fast forward, of course, to the presidency of Harry Truman. You know, Henry Olson, one of my favorite columnists, he's a Washington Post columnist, a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, had a really interesting column recently talking about how Harry Truman defeated the odds in his first midterm election year of 19, uh, or not, not the mid, no, not the midterm election. It was his presidential election year um, where he defeated Dewey in 1948. But then Truman also was trying to stand up for the little guy. You know, he was condemning a lot of Republicans for seeking to kind of pare back or perhaps outright eliminate the New Deal. And then you can fast forward a little bit more. So President Jack Kennedy in the 1960s, who, by the way, would really be a Republican today if you think about what Jack Kennedy stood for. You know, he, he was a cold warrior, hated the communists, he supported tax cuts and so forth. And then LBJ with his Great Society programs, Medicare, Medicaid and whatnot, that was what the Democratic Party was. It was an economic issue 
fiscal policy centric political party that supported labor unions, supported collective bargaining and so forth. They really I'm not I'm not saying I agree with all this, obviously, but this is who they were. They were economic issue, blue collar voters. You start to see this shift happen in the 1980s. So Jimmy Carter, you know, famously lost to Ronald Reagan in a landslide in 1980. Reagan demolishes Walter Mondale in 1984. He did so in part by attracting a lot of what historians and political pundits now refer to as a coalition of, quote unquote, Reagan Democrats. These are people whose parents, grandparents were FDR supporting New Deal supporting Democrats. But by the 1980s, as early as that, they saw in Ronald Reagan someone that they did not necessarily see on the other side of the aisle. They saw someone who spoke to their blue-collar day-to-day concerns, or at least would give rhetorical voice to that, if not necessarily always in the finer granular details of of policy, although some of that too, to be sure. And then if you fast forward even more, really to the Barack Obama presidency, the Obama presidency is really where you saw the last vestiges, I think, of the old-school Democratic Party really just totally start to fall off the wheels. Now, in defense of the limited notion that the Obama-era Democratic Party still purported to care about economic concerns, it is true that they passed Obamacare, which was the largest entitlement since President Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. So, you know, to an extent, they were still trying to kind of channel that FDR, Truman, LBJ kind of blue-collar, pro-worker, pro poor, pro-working man sort of, um, you know, approach to, to politics. But time and time again in the Obama presidency, no matter where you looked, you did see the emergence of what today we can refer to as the woke ideology, as, as what today we can refer to as just the rise of identity politics, this intersectional hierarchy of victimhood, where the, the way that you stand in the pyramid of aggrieved victimhood is ranked based on how oppressed you are, where everything is divided between oppressed and oppressors. If you are white, Christian, Asian, or Jewish, basically, then you are an oppressor. Uh, you know, a, a side note, I have to say, I, I, as a Jew, the, the idea that my people are oppressors I mean, open a history book, guys. I don't even know what else to say to you. I mean, the Jews have been the most oppressed people ever. But you see this over the course of the Obama presidency, and it really, really, really has now emerged even more fully, I think, in the presidency of Joe Biden, which makes sense because Joe Biden was Barack Obama's vice president. So I I, want to continue this conversation, talk a little bit more about what I think you're seeing unfold before our eyes and this revolt against the wokeism, the wokeization of the Democratic Party. Let's take it to a very quick commercial break, though. We'll continue this, this discussion right on the other side. Stay with us. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline.
So we're talking here about the evolution or the devolution, maybe you might say, of the Democratic Party from the one-time working man's pro-labor union, pro-collective bargaining, pro-minimum wage era of FDR and LBJ into what it has become. And I just want to quickly emphasize here, I know I've said this already, I'm not necessarily saying I, I support the, you know every aspect of FDR's New Deal, for God's sake. That, that, that is not the stance I'm making. I'm just trying to make a different point about the, the way the Democratic Party has changed. And ultimately, I want to talk about why the American people are currently revolting against that, as you see in the opinion polls reflected before the midterm elections this November. So think about some of the I- iconic woke issues. So in 2008, when he ran for president, Barack Obama purported to oppose same-sex marriage. Now, we knew it was a lie at the time as an Illinois state senator back in like 2004 or so, around the time that he was an adjunct law professor at my alma mater, the University of Chicago Law School. He had already come out in favor of same-sex marriage, so he tried to walk it back a little bit in 2008. No one really believed him. Ends up coming out fully in favor of it in 2012. If, if I recall correctly, it was actually his then vice president, Joe Biden, who let it slip to some media outlet. Maybe it was Time Magazine or something. I don't remember. Saying that their ticket, the Obama-Biden 2012 ticket, was, was going to come out for same-sex marriage. Another issue, we're going we're to come back to this shortly, that the Obama-era Democratic Party really, really started to go all in on was so-called climate change global warming. I mean, it was around this time that they were that they were starting to rebrand it as climate change, I guess. Re- recall that it really was not that long ago that the left talked on and on and on about global warming. I guess they realized that climate change polled better or whatever. But what's happened over the Biden presidency, and what you have to remember here, Joe Biden is turning 80 years old this year. He apparently has COVID now, and we, of course, wish him well as he, as, as he recovers from that. But he is just a fill-in. He, he is just a total stand-in for the Democratic Party. He is an avatar. He is, he is a symbol. I mean, he, he is not acting, I mean to say, as Joe Biden, President of the United States. He is acting as Joe Biden, someone who can be manipulated by the far left of the Democratic Party. And on issue after issue, you see him lending support to the most extreme voices within that party. So let's go back here to my state of Florida. I mentioned again on this episode that I live here. And an instance that we have talked about in this podcast so many times, because I think that it's a very useful, it's a very useful fight that kind of shows the course forward for the future of a fighting more muscular American right. We've, We've talked on and on and on about this fight that Governor DeSantis picked against the Walt Disney Company when the Walt Disney Company came out opposed to common sense legislation that Florida passed to ban gender ideology from K through 12, basically, or excuse me, K through six, literally just K through six. Very, very commonsensical law. So at the time, you know, people, Democrats all across the country were saying, you know, you can't say gay in schools in Florida. Total nonsense. The word gay is literally not even in the relevant section of the bill that was subsequently signed into law. They were just totally fabricating lies. But Biden and and all the leading Democrats completely excoriated Florida Republicans for this. But think about what they're coming out in favor of. They're literally coming out in favor of permitting teachers to indoctrinate children into transgenderism, into the most vogue ideas of sexuality and gender ideology that just literally just 10 years ago would have been considered arguably fringe in gender studies departments of the American Academy. 
And now the Democratic Party, everyone from Pelosi to Biden to Kamala, they're talking about the alleged homophobia, transphobia. I mean, think about what's happening now just on the transgender issue. Leah Thomas just, just won the University of Pennsylvania's Woman Athlete of the Year Award and apparently has been nominated to be an NCAA Woman Athlete of the Year. We live in just truly crazy times here. And the energy issue in particular, I told you that I wanted to come back to that issue. Man, this issue, maybe more than any other, I think really just encapsulates the complete dissent of the Democratic Party from the one-time working man's hard scrabble party. You know, the party of, of Joe Biden's childhood, frankly. Joe Biden grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania. It wasn't that long ago. I mean, it was, you know, 14, 15 years ago, whatever, when Joe Biden would still campaign as Uncle Joe from Scranton, Pennsylvania. That's probably half the reason that Barack Obama wanted him in 2008 to be his running mate was because Barack Obama was clearly this flashy, polished product of the American Academy. They wanted kind of like a boring white guy, frankly, from the Rust Belt to kind of shore up that working man's vote. That was literally his vice presidential appeal in 2008. But no, nowadays, as we face four decade high inflation, the consumer price index, the CPI, annualized inflation last month in June was up 9.1% year over year. We are at a four-decade high for inflation. Average prices at the pump now over $4 a gallon for the first time in, in American history. You know, the price of, of eggs up 33% year over year. Chicken up like 16 to 18% year over year. This is not like a bizarre inflation. It's not like an abstruse inflation where it's just hitting like luxury items. I mean, it's not like just Tiffany and company or 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 whatever, or, or, or Gucci is just going up in prices. No, these are like real day-to-day -day products that are really going up in prices here. Gasoline has been among the very worst, the, the worst hit. But one of the most amazing things that the Trump presidency managed to accomplish in the course of the presidency was they made America a net energy exporter. They made America a net energy export. It was a remarkable achievement due in no small part to the innovations, the revolutions in the industry happening at the time with respect to fracking and shale drilling and all of that. But America is blessed. We now know, after all these various innovations in the industry, that we are blessed to sit atop a huge wellspring of hydrocarbons. And, you know, amidst four-decade-high inflation, four-decade-high price at the pump, you would think that Uncle Joe, the hard-scrabble working man, labor union guy from Scranton, Pennsylvania, would want to tap into that for the most rudimentary of supply and demand reasons to try to get that supply up and get that price down or at least stabilize it a little bit. But that's not what he's doing. He has repeatedly condemned drilling, on the very first day of his presidency, he canceled the Keystone XL pipeline that would take the that that would that would take that oil from the Alberta tar sands up in Canada, get get it down to the Gulf of Mexico. As recently as earlier this month, he yet again denied new drilling permits in Alaska and the Gulf of Mexico region. What is he doing here? Like why? Why is he doing this? But the reason that he's doing this, again, is because for reasons that are still not entirely clear to me, I'm trying to figure out just like you guys are, the Democratic Party dog is waved by this multifaceted, grotesque tail that cares about the most extreme limousine liberal issues. 
Stay with us. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. But there was really no more quintessential limousine liberal issue. There was really no more issue, I think, that the the hoity-toity, the Upper West Side, West Hollywood, New York Times, MSNBC watching crowd can care about that the lower middle income rungs of the economic ladder can can literally not afford to care about more than so-called climate change. Now, it's worth pointing out, first of all, even if you accept that the temperature is rising at an exponential level, and and even even if you accept that humans are largely, perhaps disproportionately responsible for that, I'm I'm going to make no comment on that. Let, let's just stipulate that. Let, let's concede, just for the sake of argument, that both of those things are happening. I mean, do do liberals realize that the U.S. actually only contributes about fifteen percent of global greenhouse gas emissions? The overwhelming majority of these emissions come from developing or third world countries. China and India are by far, by by orders of magnitude, the two biggest polluters with respect to greenhouse gas emissions in the planet. So amidst all this happening, amidst Joe Biden openly flirting with declaring a national emergency on climate change, Amidst this four-decade high horrific inflation, gasoline prices are, are this high. Pete Buttigieg, the ridiculously underqualified transportation secretary of the United States. I mean, talk about someone who has no business being a cabinet official. This guy was the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. I, I don't know if y'all have been to South Bend, Indiana. I have been. Not a particularly well-run city, to be honest with you. Lots of crime. So the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, should not be a national figure on the merits alone, but transportation. Like, what what the hell has he ever done about transportation? Are you kidding me? In any event, Pete Buttigieg was testifying last week before the House Transportation Infrastructure Committee, and he openly said, Of course, the more pain we are all experiencing from the high price of gas, the more benefit there is for those who can access electric vehicles. Now, I don't know about you, but... When I hear that clip and I look at the basic statistics when it comes to inflation, wage stagnation, wages have been fairly stagnant under the Biden administration. So when think, just think about Econ 101 here. When inflation is through the roof and wages are stagnant, you're going to lose real purchasing power. So amidst that happening, this guy goes in front of Congress and tries to talk about the incidental or even direct benefit of Americans feeling, quote unquote, pain. I mean, that is cartoonishly evil stuff. I don't use the word evil lightly, but that is evil. For a cabinet official to celebrate pain in front of the people's body, the U.S. House of Representatives? Last time I checked, we the people are sovereign in this country. It's not the 
unaccountable, unelected cabinet secretary from South Bend, Indiana. It's we the people. And he is telling we the people that our pain is a good thing. You really can't make it up. I mean, if, if this had happened under a Republican administration, if a Republican cabinet secretary went before the U.S. Congress and openly celebrated, quote unquote, pain. I mean, can you imagine the headlines that the New York Times would put out there for weeks? The editorials? Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon would be on that for a, a solid month making fun of the Gordon Gecko, Robert Barron, nasty Republicans. It's it's really crazy stuff. And just to kind of wrap up on the electric car point, you know, as Tom Jipping of the Heritage Foundation pointed out to me on Twitter, the, the average electric car in America right now costs 82% of the median American household income. So put, put another way, the median American has to devote almost an entire year's salary to purchase one of those shiny Elon Musk, Tesla electric cars or whatnot. And there are all sorts of logistical problems with electric cars, by the way. The Wall Street Journal had a very interesting weekend essay a few weeks ago. If I recall correctly, they tasked the reporter with driving basically 1,000, 1,500 miles, trying to do like a massive road trip in an electric car. And the moral of the story is, is it didn't go very well. The reporter was constantly lamenting how difficult it ended up being to get cross-country in an electric car because the nation, quite simply put, does not have the infrastructure in place to support that yet. They don't have the ubiquity of the charging stations. I mean, what, I mean, what are you, you going to do? You can stand in the middle of the road in Prescott, Arizona, waiting for your car to charge for 30, 45 minutes. I mean, like, who, who has that kind of time? So it's just ridiculous on so, so many levels here. And I, again, I really do think that this issue maybe more than anyone else, or, or I think that this issue more than anything else just reveals how comically out of touch the modern Democratic, the modern Democratic Party has become from the concerns of the median American. So I'm just going to read the concluding paragraph of the column I wrote this past week. I said, quote, the dog that is the Democratic Party is manipulated by a multifaceted tale that is a grotesque fusion of criminal adulation Gaia worship, Malthusian radicalism, eugenicist lust, and gender ideology downstream of the worst excesses of American academia. Maybe that will play well for certain Upper West Side and West Hollywood voting precincts this November, but it won't play very well in real America. And sure enough, it is not playing very well in real America. As, as I record here, Joe Biden has an average approval rating, a job approval rating on the Real Clear Politics average of 37.3%. There was a Quinnipiac poll just this past week showing him at 31%. The, the, these are record-breaking lows. In the, in the history of modern presidential opinion polling, there is simply no precedent for this. No matter how unpopular Donald Trump was at this point of his presidency, no matter how unpopular Barack Obama was at this point of his presidency, as he approached the midterm election, the 2010 wipeout, the Tea Party wave, none of them reached quite this low. It really is that bad. President Biden's average job approval rating specifically as pertains to the economy, he's 31.2% underwater. Think about that. He's 31.2% underwater. An average, an average of approximately 32% of Americans think that Joe Biden is doing a good job handling the economy. His people are actually are having to spin 
what a recession is. So the, so the historically accepted definition of what a recession is, economists have used this definition for as long as I've been alive. I, I majored in economics in college. I mean, this is what they taught you basically in economics class. The historically accepted definition of what a recession is, is back-to-back quarters of negative G- GDP growth, of economic contraction. Well, the first quarter of this year saw that. The first quarter of this year was, I believe, was a GDP growth of negative 1.6%. But they're actually starting to, the White House is literally starting to redefine what a recession is. So this is from a July 21st, 2022 blog post. It's a whitehouse.gov blog post entitled, quote, how do economists determine whether the economy is in a recession? They say, what is a recession? While some maintain that two consecutive quarters of falling real GDP constitute a recession, that is neither the official definition nor the way economists evaluate the state of the business cycle. BS. I'm sorry, but BS. Words do have meaning. Contrary to the Orwellian folks who are trying to redefine all these words mean what they want to mean, a recession has a meaning and it has always meant two consecutive quarters. But, you know, as my friend Eric Erickson pointed out on Twitter, surely, you know, the folks who don't even know what a woman is are capable of saying what a recession is, right? I mean, the whole thing is just absolutely nuts. But his approval rating on, on, on his handling of the economy is roughly 32%. I mean, get this. As I speak to you, the polling as to the direction of the country This is the real clear politics average. They have a real sample size here. The real clear politics average on whether the country is headed in the right or wrong direction, 18.0% right direction, 74.6% wrong track. Almost 57 points underwater. I want to meet the 18% of people who think that things are going great out there as we have a wide open southern border with unmitigated traffickers, smugglers, various other criminals flooding in as we have four-decade high inflation, as we have all these foreign crises where the U.S. is nowhere to be seen. So, yeah, it really it really is that bad. And the people are rebelling. That, that's what you're seeing. So let's take it to a quick break, and then we're going to break that down here as we get towards the end of this episode. Stay with us. We'll be right back. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So the upshot here as we hurdle towards the end of this episode is that the American people are rebelling. The American people see what Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and the Democratic Party leadership, and they cannot run from this, by the way. The Democrats control the White House, they control the U.S. House, and they very narrowly control the U.S. Senate. They are trying to scapegoat Joe Manchin for Build Back Better and and whatever else they're trying to scapegoat Joe Joe Manchin on. But the reality is, this is a Democratic Party problem. And they're going to pay the price this fall. There there is a red wave coming. It's just a question as to how large that wave is. You know, it's funny. The timing 
of Joe Biden getting COVID is is interesting. I, I'm not going conspiratorial. I'm not saying that it's a fabricated, manufactured crisis. I, I believe that the man has COVID. But it is very interesting insofar as, think about it this way. If you are running in a swing race, the example that I used the other day, think about if you're Mark Kelly. Mark Kelly is a vulnerable incumbent Democratic senator from Arizona. Arizona was the home of Barry Goldwater, longtime red state bastion, turned purple. Mark Kelly is running a, a, a tough re-election race. It will likely be against Blake Masters. He will probably win the Republican primary. I'm a huge fan of Blake's, and uh, to be fully candid with you, I, I hope he wins. But if you are Mark Kelly, do you want Joe Biden to be out there speaking to the American people every day? Do you want your race to be defined by someone who has an average job approval rating in like the 36 to 37 percent range? under whose leadership 56 to 57% of the American people think is not going the right way, the country? No, I mean, of course you don't. Of course you don't. So the only question really at this point this fall is how big the, the red wave is. And I, I, I do think strategically speaking, the Democrats really should try to hide Joe Biden the most they can. The, the problem is, the, the flip side of that coin is the extent to which Joe Biden is in hiding, whether it's because he needs his medicine, he needs his, you know, he needs his his 80-year-old kind of baby food, he needs, he needs to change his D-pens, his adult diapers. The more that he is out of the photo, or out of the picture, Kamala Harris, by logical consequence, should be in the picture more. And she's maybe the only person in all of Washington less popular, <laughs> less popular than, than Joe Biden himself. And Kamala Harris has had infamously high staff turnover. She's been losing senior staffers left and right. She has an incredibly leaky office, whether it's CNN, Politico. Everyone from that office seems to be leaking about how horrific the management is there. By management, I mean Kamala Harris herself, obviously. So that kind of leads us to 2022 midterm election handicapping. Now, What's interesting is that if you look at the generic ballot, and what pollsters refer to as the generic ballot, is they basically say, okay, if you're voting for Congress tomorrow, would you support the generic Republican or the generic Democrat? It's a little mixed. There are some polls, Rasmussen, that show a large Republican advantage on the generic ballot. There are some that do not, which is interesting insofar as if everything I'm saying is true, you would expect that to be a little more one-sided. And I will grant that. I do think it is somewhat of an open question, the extent to which the January 6th committee hearings are potentially dissuading people, independents, moderates, from pulling the lever for the Republican Party. You know, it's worth noting on the January 6th stuff that the Wall Street Journal editorial board and the New York Post editorial board, two firmly right-of-center editorial boards, many of the two most famous Newspaper editorial boards in the country both had editorials this past weekend basically saying that Trump should should go away. I thought, I thought that was fascinating, probably fodder for a future discussion. But, it, you know, there's one thing that, that, that could really derail Republicans retaking, retaking the House and Senate this year. I think it would be Donald Trump announcing before November that he's going to run for re-election. He could single-handedly destroy dozens of House and Senate candidacies. Because if you're a conservative, a Republican, no matter how you feel about former President Trump and your mileage may vary, as they say, no matter how you feel, there's one thing that you should be able to recognize is that he is a polarizing and divisive figure. 
And if there's one thing that Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, Herschel Walker in Georgia, all these other Senate candidates, the House candidates that are going to be in close district, if there's one thing that they do not want, I guarantee you, they probably wouldn't say it on Fox News or publicly because they don't want to piss off President Trump. But privately, I guarantee you they do not want him to announce. So I certainly hope that President Trump does not announce his inevitable run for 2024 before November. But the other thing, again, election analysts, horse race trackers, the pundits tend to have a big divide as to whether to analyze these sort of things from a micro perspective or a macro perspective. So the micro perspective would be to look race by race, candidate by candidate, and say, oh, he or she is not a particularly compelling candidate, therefore he or she is going to lose. So the two Senate races I just alluded to are actually very good examples of this. Dr. Oz in, in Pennsylvania is not an ideal candidate, to put it mildly. He literally remains to this day a Turkish dual citizen, if I'm not mistaken. I think he has said that he will renounce his Turkish citizenship if he is elected this November, why he has not done so already while he simultaneously runs to represent we the people in the U.S. Senate is a little odd to me, to put it mildly. Herschel Walker in Georgia is a flawed candidate himself, gaff-prone, hasn't even lived in Georgia really since his Georgia Bulldogs Heisman Trophy winning days. He's been living in Texas for a while. A lot of questions about his past, past extramarital affairs, any of that stuff. So the micro handicappers will focus on these races and try to analyze one at a time. But the macro analysts, and you know, in Newsweek's op-ed section, which, which I run every day, we ran a good piece on this from Newt Gingrich, who would know about this topic. I mean, Newt Gingrich oversaw the 1994 Republican wave election. That was the first midterm election of the, of the Clinton presidency. He basically argues to not get too bogged down, at least at this point, in the details. There's a very similar piece a couple weeks ago by Sean Trendy, a very talented political handicapper over at Real Clear Politics. Harry Enton of CNN, I believe, has said much the same thing. The idea here is that when there is a wave election, whether it was 94 with the contract for America with Newt Gingrich, whether it was the 2010 Tea Party wave, even to a slightly lesser extent, 2014, the first midterm election of Obama's second term, which was also a big Republican landslide. That's when you saw like Joni Ernst win in Iowa and so forth. The idea here is that when, there, when a wave election comes, it usually does not materialize in the polling until a few weeks, maybe a month, month and a half beforehand. So there's just no way that you would see it showing up in the polls here. And I, I personally, if I were a betting man, if I were going to the political casino, that is where I would put my money. I would bet that in basically all of these coin flip races, things like the Pennsylvania Senate race, the Georgia Senate race, the Nevada Senate race between Adam Laxalt and Cortez Mastro, the Arizona Senate race between Mark Kelly and presumed nominee Blake Masters, I personally have to think that virtually all of these coin flip races, even though it's not always going to be obvious in the opinion, it's not always going to be obvious in the polling right now, will break for Republicans. Obviously, not every single one. I mean, take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. I mean, I, I obviously am not guaranteeing 
a Republican victory in every single race. But that will definitely be the general trend here. And that, that general trend is going to hold to kind of just put a bow on the entire theme of this episode. That trend is going to hold because the American people are just sick and fed up with one political party being so cartoonishly out of touch to the point where one of their cabinet officials is testifying before the people's body, the U.S. House, and celebrating Americans experiencing pain at the pump. Man, they really are that bad. Joe Biden really is that senile, that incompetent, that feckless. These are not manufactured problems. You know, I saw Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff, saying like, oh, you know, his approval rating is so bad because that's all the media talks about is how poor a job. I mean, I, that reminds me of like Hillary Clinton 25, 30 years ago referring to the so-called vast right-wing conspiracy. I mean, I, do people live in a bubble? Like in what world do conservatives and Republicans control the media so much to be able to dictate the narrative that is out there? Anyone paying even a modicum of attention to the subject knows that it is the complete opposite, of course, that liberals and progressives completely dominate the media and they're able to kind of spin the narratives, frame the headlines and all that to their pleasure. So I do certainly predict that a red wave is coming this fall. Again, the only question is quite how high the crest of that wave will be. But it's going to be a rebuke. It's going to be a humbling rebuke to President Biden, Vice President Harris, and the political party that they are overseeing that at this point has just been so indescribably far removed from its humble labor union working class origins. I sincerely hope that after that rebuke happens, that a more humble President Biden, if he's even still president then come January... Thanks so much for tuning in this week. Hope you enjoyed this Midsummer Reset episode. I'm Josh Hammer, and we will see you next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.